What's crazy about the last message of the Abraham series is it covers like two and a half chapters of scripture. Um, and, uh, and we only have a couple minutes. So um, I'm, I, I might read some of it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to jump around here a little bit just to make sure we understand the story. Some of it I'll paraphrase and tell you the story and some of it I'll read directly from the text. And I want to encourage you to read um, yourselves the, the end of the story. The, the, at least the end of the story of Abraham. And Abraham, we, we said that the, the awesome thing about the whole design of Abraham's story in Scripture is that it shows the whole point of the story of Abraham is that it's not the story of Abraham. That's the whole point of it, is that it's one chapter in the story of God. It's one chapter in the story of the people of God, and then the people of God are one chapter in the story of God. And Abraham is just one chapter in the one chapter. You know, he's, he, he's, like a, he's like a paragraph in a chapter of the people of God, which is a chapter of God sort of thing. And, uh, and that's the whole point of the story of Abraham. That's what we're supposed to glean from it, from the pattern of this story, is that this is a story of God. This is a story of God. Um, however, in the lifeline of Abraham himself, this is the end, and it's really important to see how Abraham's life ends. Very, very important, and we don't have time to dissect the whole thing, um, but I'm just going to go down and, and kind of explain and paraphrase here, okay? So um, it's, it really ends at the end of chapter 22, after um, Abraham had offered up Isaac because God had told him to. And God stayed his hand from offering up his son and rescues him. Then it says the angel revisits Abraham a second time. And this is kind of a, this is a, a marker of like conclusion. God is bringing things all the way around and kind of closing out the chapter of the story of Abraham. And this is what it says in chapter 22 down in verse 16, what it says about the angel of the Lord. And, uh, the angel says, uh, by myself I have sworn, de- declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Um, so there's a conditional statement. You remember that the, the whole big picture of the story of Abraham, this beautiful picture, is that God gives a covenant to Abraham that is not based on Abraham's performance, but is based on God's ability. So the covenant that, that is the middle of the story of Abraham is when he, when God walks through the pieces of the animals and there's that whole circumcision thing and all of that stuff. And the whole point of that is God's like, we're going to have a covenant, we're going to have a relationship, and it's because I'm God, I'm awesome, and I chose you, believe that. And no matter where you go, no matter how much your family line messes up, I got you, I'm with you, you can trust me, and it's on God. And that's the foundation of the story because the story is about God and God is always faithful and God never fails. And so since our covenant is rooted in God, what we know is, is that the relationship with God is always good because he's good. And the main thing I have to do in that is trust God. When I start trusting myself, 
then the relationship starts to feel really whacked out. But it's not because God went anywhere. It's because I got my head all messed up instead of trusting God, right? So that's the big story. But here at the end, for the first time, God actually shows a sowing and reaping principle, a conditional statement. He says, you are going to be super blessed because you obeyed me. And so the underlying factor is, I got you and I'm with you and you can't change my love for you or my promise to you. On the other hand, because you listened and because you obeyed, man, there is a whole other level of blessing for your life. And that is awesome. I mean, it means like there's that one part of our lives that just kind of wants to say, since God loves me and since there's unconditional grace and since, you know, I'm a redeemed child of God because of what he did and not because of me, then it really doesn't matter what I do or what I think. I'm just going to kind of do my own thing and whatever and God's got me. Well, you can do that. We can do that. And God will still love us. There is, I mean, God's love will never fail. But when I trust God's love and when I trust his character, what we're told in Hebrews in the passage that talks about Abraham is it says, those who have faith are those who believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And what's happening here is that we are seeing the reward of a life that has been lived in submission and obedience to God. And that's what's awesome. Now, the, the thing that's cool about this at the end here is that um, Abraham finishes strong. And he runs, you know, at the race, there's that, I went running, I made a major mistake yesterday. I went running with another local pastor. And he's the, he's the pastor of the church that planted this church about 180 years ago. Um, this church was planted by Coventry Church of the Brethren down the road. And my buddy, who's connected to us through Netzer, Mark Mutler, spectacular athlete, and I made a, a bad decision to go for a run with him. He's been asking me to go for a run. Ah, man, I am sore today. That was a fast run. He has a son who's on the O&J cross-country team who is super fast, and I know where he gets it from. Okay, so... Um, when I saw the finish line, and he told me, he said, see that green marker up there? That's the finish line. I'm like, oh, man, you had to go and put a finish line out there. So now we got to compete, right? Uh, the question is, when you see the finish line, does that make you go, ah, oh, I'm almost there. So you slow down, or does the finish line make you run fast through it? And in our relationship with God, the Scriptures are very clear about what it's supposed to do. That we sprint to the finish line. We sprint. We go all out, flat out. And in order for that to happen, you know, what's important is there is a pacing thing in our lives that's really important. Todd being the track coach, you know all about this stuff, right? Um, the, the, The pacing is important. It's very, very important. And in our lives, how we finish at the end has a lot to do with how we ran the race. And it's not just willpower at the end. It's also about the decisions we're making along the way that allow us to finish well. And we see this in our lives all the time when, when people get to the end of a chapter of their life, when they're retiring or when a relationship is kind of changing. You look back and you look and all of a sudden in that moment it reveals things. 
It's not that the end is just a decision about whether I'm going to finish well. It's about it reveals where our confidence has been and how we've been handling those things because how we can close things out has a lot to do with how we walked it out. And there's strange parallels for me in this thing right now today. <laughs> you know, I, this series has been full of that. DJ, like on the Sunday that DJ was here teaching, it was stepping into your destiny. And that was like way before like we knew DJ was going to be here. This series has had kind of these weird things. But I'm not talking about me or about Parker Ford. We're talking about Abraham and about the principle of how to walk out life. You know? And, and um, we all have those moments where we might not be at a finish line or even see a finish line in front of us, but where the moments where we're reminded that there are finish lines. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, like yesterday, I was at East Coventry Elementary School watching my son play on a travel soccer team against another school, and I was like, I remember playing travel soccer for Coventry on that field. Whoa. Like, I can remember it real clear. Like, I remember, like, this goal and that goal. Like, I'm like, wow, that's weird. And, like, the, the, the circles of life, right? I, I remember the first time dropping them off at Coventry Church of the Brethren where, Kristen, are you in the room right now? No? She's in the nursery, of course. Yeah, uh, she the, uh, runs the, the daycare there, the, or the uh, preschool there. But uh, she took over for a, a woman named Mrs. Hartman who had been there for all of eternity past. And um, she was my preschool uh, teacher there. And I remember dropping the kids off and being like, whoa, she was my teacher at this place. And just when life does that thing where you realize, man, once you start to see how much time has lapsed and there's moments of nostalgia, you realize, man, there are finish lines. I was there and now I'm here. My parents were here and now I'm here. You know, and we start to realize there's finish lines. And they happen in different moments. They happen in loss when someone close to us moves away. I mean, it was a huge finish line for me when the Bite Works moved back to Michigan. I was like, whoa, dude, like, Wow. You know, that's a chapter. When we let go of people we love when they pass on, massive game changer for us, you know? And we walk that out in grief. A moment when a dad walks a, a daughter down the aisle, you know, or when kids move out and parents are looking around and they're like, whoa, I forget what it's like to be alone in a house with you, you know? Those are, those are moments in our lives where we realize that life is full of finish lines and ultimately my life will have a finish line and it's part of something much bigger than me. And the more we learn to accept that and live in the reality of that, the more effective we can be at living in the reality of what God has actually called us to be. That's the humility factor of God giving us perspective that's not only I'm small and insignificant compared to the whole, but it's I'm a child of God who lives in the eternal and I'm a part of something huge that's awesome, but I'm this much of it. I'm, the whole world doesn't revolve around me, but the whole world does revolve around God and I get to play my part with God. And I want to play it well, like Abraham did. Because you obeyed me, Abraham, this is the blessing. And it gives us the opportunity to hold on to that. Now, there's two things. If you want to finish strong, and if you want to run the race well to the end, I think there's two things that Abraham, two pitfalls that Abraham avoided here at the end. 
And most of that had to do with what he learned in his life and walking it out. And the one thing is we have a tendency to want to hold on to things that we need to be willing to hold loosely and to let go of. And secondly is we want to let go of things that we're actually supposed to be faithful in performing. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes we don't want to persevere. We just want to get lazy and give up because it's getting hard. And other times we want to hold on to stuff and we don't want to let it go. And I feel like for Abraham, what it looks like by the end of his life here is he's willing to let go of what he needs to let go of. But continue to push strong into the things that he needs to push strong into. And, um, you know, for Abraham, there's a deep desire to control his circumstances. You see it throughout his life. When he's like spinning those tales about Sarah being his sister and the way he's handling Lot sometimes and all that, those are control mechanisms to make sure that things work out his way. But I think by the end of his life, it becomes very clear that Abraham realizes anytime I try to control this, it does not go well. And it doesn't help things. And by the end, he gets to a place where even Isaac, of course, he puts on the altar. You know? And that's what we talked about. That was the last thing. It was like, whoa, the weight of that one. You know, where he's willing to release. But there's other things here in this story that are profound that we watch how he's willing to let go of at the end of his life. And, 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 what we're, and we're going to get into that uh, in, in just a minute. But he's willing to let go of his identity. He's willing to let go of his creature comforts. He's willing to let go of his resources. And it's that moment where, you know, you know the whole thing, of the old thing of like there's a jar and inside the jar you grab the thing, the monkey with the fist in the jar and they want the thing that's in there but as long as they're holding on to it they can't get their fist back out and they can't get it until they let go. And the promises that God gave to Abraham couldn't fully be accessed unless he was willing to let go. And that's just part of being human in front of a living God. That when God speaks something into our life, it is God's job to fulfill that, not mine. Somebody just prayed. I think it was Todd. Somebody just prayed, or maybe it was Paul. But the, the, yeah, Paul was praying that our, our job is to be faithful to God. His job is to fulfill to make it happen, to accomplish things. Our job is to trust Him. And that requires, in moments of our life, letting go. Just letting go of things. And the moments that we're willing to let go define the end of the journey so much more. Because when we walk through controlling our resources and tight-fisted and all of that, when we get to the end of a chapter, then letting go becomes so much harder because we've been holding on with grip. But when we walk through life journeying with God, holding things loosely, then when we get to the end, we say, it was never my thing anyway. And we see this with Abraham so well. As a matter of fact, Hebrews just puts it on big display. It says he was yearning for a city whose foundations were built by God. That's what he was yearning for. And because of that, he could just walk through. He's like, I don't, I don't care. I don't care. Abimelech, I don't care. Pharaoh, you know, and he gets to the place by the end where he's letting go more and more of control. And it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so he, he's able to let go of that. But then the second thing is not letting go of the things that you still need to take responsibility for. And sometimes it's easy to let go and just be like, all right, I'm out, you know, and just bail. 
But there's still the ability to be faithful, the need to be faithful, to be perseverant, and to dig deep when it counts. And this is the scripture in Galatians 6, 9, where it says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. It is so easy to get stuck in patterns of comfort. Like you arrive at a certain place in your life, you're getting a certain amount of income, you're getting a certain amount of stuff around, and you're like, okay, I guess like, I could kind of hang out here, you know? And that's so dangerous. And then it's so much more difficult to let go and to dig deep when it counts. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Here's the two ways that I think that Abraham overcomes those two problems. The two problems are not letting go and not digging in and persevering. But I think there's two things that go for Abraham that are spectacular that overcome this. He's not just saying, I don't want to fall into that. He's actually got two internal things that are like the fail safe. And I think if we walk with these two things throughout our lives, then in the finish lines of our lives, we will experience much more perseverance and much more grace to release things. Here's the two things. Abraham wanted something more than he wanted anything else. And that something was God. He just yearned for God. He wanted God more than he wanted anything else. And when we want God more than we want anything else, nothing, nothing can steal from us our security, our strength, our joy, our peace. Nothing can steal it when the deepest desire of our heart is for God. There's this uh, moment here at the end of the story of Abraham. So it's in chapter 23 where Sarah dies. So he loses his boo. You know, he loses his girl. He loses his, his lifelong companion, his soulmate. 127 years old she is. And that seems like it's old until you realize how old he gets, you know. He has 30-some years, 37 years after her. <laughs> he gets married again and has more kids. It's crazy. Perseveres to the end. <laughs> Runs across the finish line, as it were. That there's a spirit inside of him that says, I'm going to honor her well. And this is the amazing thing. So he goes to the land of the Hittites, and this is what he says. He says, see that cave over there? I want that cave to bury my wife in. And it's in the promised land where God had promised him. And they said, take it, man, it's yours. And he said, no way, I'm going to buy it. He said, I'm just a sojourner walking through this land. I will purchase that from you. And they say to him, listen to this, this is profound. What he, what he says in verse 4, he says, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. What they say in response to him in verse 6 is they say, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. 
He's like, and, and they have this big banter. And the banter is, they're trying to tell him he's a prince of God among them. And he's trying to say, no, I'm not. I'm a sojourner going through the land who's looking for something else. And he's like, I'm not forming a deal with you here. I'm not your guy. Don't just give me stuff. Like, this is about God. I will pay the 400 pieces of silver. Huge. Only one other expense in Scripture costs this much. Solomon's army. (laughs) You know? I mean, he paid an enormous price. And they really, I believe, they really wanted to give it to him because they have seen the blessing on his life. And they know that everyone who blesses Abraham, good stuff happens to him. And he's like, dude, you are awesome, Abraham. I will give you that thing. And finally, Abraham's like, no, I'm going to buy it. And he's like, it costs 400 shekels, man. And he's like, I got it. And he counts it out right in front of him and gives it to him. Why? Why? He will not be owned by anyone. He will not let anyone else be the one who has given him something in this moment. In this moment, he is going to honor his wife appropriately and he is going to trust his God and he is going to release his resources because it's only money. And I'm doing this right by God and his promise about this land and his promise on my family line. We see him release Isaac. We see him honor his wife. And then the last story is a spectacular story about getting his servant to go find a wife for his son, Isaac, the miraculous son, Isaac. He wants to find a wife for him. And the story around it is spectacular. You've got to go read it. If you haven't read it in a while, go check it out. Great story. They have this whole weird covenant thing between Abraham and his servant about making sure that he won't get him a wife from Canaan because they're not supposed to intermarry. So he has to go back to the land of his forefathers. And then the servant's like, yeah, but what if she doesn't want to come back to this land? And Abraham's like, uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Um, if she doesn't want to do that, then that's okay. You don't have to find him a wife, but don't let him marry one in Canaan and don't let him move back there. And Abraham's doing everything he can to figure out how to bless Isaac. And yet the one parameter is I will not violate God's principles. Spectacular picture of a guy running all the way to the finish line. So here it is. The first thing is he loves God more than anything else. Jesus says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's a sowing and reaping principle. That's an if-then statement. This is not talking about we get entrance into heaven by being really good. That's not what this is talking about. But what it does say is you want the quality life, you want the eternal life, you want to live the deep, rich God life, well then let go of your temporal life, your physical life, the stuff that you see all around you. Let go of it and join in the journey. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's the thing. Death is a finish line that's coming for all of us and we all know it. We might live in the reality of that sometimes and we might not, but it's a waterfall that's coming and we are in a kayak that we can't paddle fast enough upstream to, to, get, to get away from that thing. It is coming. It is coming. 
But when Jesus tells us to hate our life and to lose our life, he's not talking about that finish line. He's saying every day you have a finish line. Will you choose to reject and lose your life today? There will be a day when we don't get to choose whether we lose our life. The day today, I get to choose whether to lose my life in order to gain eternal life today. Today, I heard N.T. Wright, if you've heard of him, he's one of the the greatest theologians in our world right now. And uh, he lives over in England and he just sounds smarter than the rest of us because he's got a British accent. Um, I heard this great interview with him today or uh, the other day and it said, uh, somebody said, hey, N.T., Tom, you're, you know, probably the most respected theologian in our, in, in, in the Christian world right now. If, as Christians were driving to work or going where they were going, if there was a billboard along the side of the road for each one of them and you had one phrase that you could put on the billboard to speak to Christians right now, what would it be? And he said, I believe in life before death. And the person was like, what? And he said, well, all Christians know we believe in life after death. For most of us, that's probably the reason we're Christians anyway is because we want life after death. He's like, but the message of Jesus is life before death. Today, eternal life, now. Lose your life so you can gain life, so you can gain me. Today, now, before Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today, God is alive and life is possible in Him. And Abraham lived in the reality of that. Not clinging to his life, but releasing it. Knowing that after he passed away, there would be those in front of him who could succeed. And so the second point is this. The two things he had. One is, he didn't love his life. He loved God. And the second thing is, he didn't care about his success. He cared about Isaac's success. He didn't live his life for himself. He lived it for the next generation. And if we get to a finish line, that's someone else's start line. And if that's what we've been living for the whole time, then bam, we're in a good spot right now at our finish line. You know, I'm not, I'm not sad and depressed because my life is closing. I'm happy because I've finally put the platform in place for you to start from. And that's the joy. That's the joy of living our life in love and trusting God. Each one of us stands on the backs of those before us. And I can look around this room and know that there are many people in this room whose backs I stand on. And we have have forefathers who are still alive in this church. You know? Harry was my youth leader. He taught me how to do puppets. <laughs> the ground that we're standing on belonged to a farm of these guys right here. You know. And we can tell story after story of the fact that we stand on each other's shoulders. I don't know how many prayers you've prayed for me, Ruth, over the years. How many have you prayed? <laughs> I hope they keep getting more and more. And we could just go around the room and talk about that. And we all stand on shoulders of those who have gone before us. And when we exhaust our lives for the betterment of someone else, then at the end of our life, we realize that there is something worthwhile, that the generations after us are blessed, and that God's glory is raised up through the legacy of the church, and that that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. All right, I want to close this thing with this passage right here. By the way, we never know exactly how to live our lives, right? I mean, we're always half-baked and a mess and all that, you know? We're like... 
we're half, like, whatever. We don't know. But when we trust God and seek him as much as we can and as much as we know how to, we can trust him with the rest. The steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. And Philip says to Jesus, we don't know the way. How can we know the way? We don't know the Father. We don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. This is the way. Walk in it. Just know God and follow God the best you know how. And it doesn't matter how, how messed up you are, God will take care of the rest. You know, lean not on your own understandings and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So the thing of Abraham is as he longed for God and as he longed for the success of the next generation, God allowed him to avoid the pitfalls of holding on to things too tight and to just getting lazy and giving up because he was running to the end for Isaac. And so fear and control and weariness and doubt, those things all flee away. And this is the passage I want us to hear at the very end here. This is this picture in Revelation, this amazing apocalyptic picture of what's going on in the heavenlies for those of us who are warring to hold on to Christ and, and to hold on to who we really are in him. It's in Revelation 12, 7 to 12. Man, this is an incredible passage of Scripture. And it says, now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, listen to this, they being us, and they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And he exists on this earth and he accuses all day and all night. But we have a blood of a lamb that has washed us. And we have the word of a testimony of a God who's working in our life. And we will not stand in submission to the voice of the accuser. I will not live my life for me. You will not live your life for you. We will not think that we have to protect ourselves or control our comforts. What we are called to do is remember that we are part of an eternal life that exists today and that today we can choose to reject anything in our life that doesn't lead us us to knowing God and blessing the next generation. Everything else can stand down because the only reason I'm tempted to do anything different than that is because the voice of the accuser who knows that his time is short and he has no sway in our lives. He's done. He's finished. Let's keep him there. Let's keep him there. Amen?